good show's Islanders Hour. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> it's not, but our next guest is probably ecstatic to, to be able to talk about uh, the Islanders who take game one and just control basically the full 60 minutes. Well, maybe the full 59 minutes against the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning. It's Justin Bourne of Hockey Central. What's going on? Hi, fellas. Do you, do you guys know that you guys have the best lead-in music of any radio show I do? Like, it's always different, unique, usually relevant. It's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lance does a great job. Song? Not familiar with that one. I actually don't know what the song was, but I liked it. But it was just oh. another reminder. Like, every, every time I'm, like, waiting All right, to, for well, my we'll chance to talk. we'll get Lance to send you like what it, it is. We'll, we'll get Lance to start sending you his daily playlist. We actually used to say to Lance, like, hey, make a Spotify playlist with what you have because people would ask him. But I think he yeah. stopped doing that, like, five days in. He was like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> so like, yeah, I tried. They've got Shazam. You know, they can yeah, figure yeah. it out. <laughs> yeah, he's like, ah, make him do their own thing. Yeah. But, so, but sometimes he'll mix in you, a little hip-hop, too. Anyway, carry on. Oh, yeah. Enough about the music. <laughs> you crushing beer cans off your head, too, or what? You know, uh, JD, I think you know me well enough to know that not lately. Uh, it's no, been some time no. since I've been crushing <laughs> yeah. beer cans off you my head. You crush a bubbly can. You could do so- <laughs> like you could show some solidarity. <laughs> Honestly, I see that stuff and I'm like, wow, you're a brave person. You know, like you're a brave man. Because I just, it's not so much of, um, you know, oh, the young thing, you know, you date a guy's daughter and he says, oh, you know, if you ever mess. But it is. That's a lot of pressure always to know, like, any slip up and it could end up in the hands of a man who crushes beer cans on his head. It's just it's an intimidating thing. You're brave. I think the biggest thing for me is just, like, the general inferiority that comes with it because, like, yeah. he's 67 <laughs> yeah. and I'm currently yeah. better than him at nothing. Like, yeah. I can't beat him on the <laughs> golf course. Like, he's tougher than me. He's more popular. He's, yeah, more uh, he's just. Yeah, yeah, like there's just not a single direction yet. Like, you just, hey, oh. get old already. Like, let me take no. over a couple of things. Yeah, no, that's great. You're never going to carve the turkey at the dinner. Like, you're just never getting to carve it. Like, that's oh just not going to happen. I can't imagine the pressure if I was even asked to. I wouldn't even want to. No. <laughs> by the way, yeah, you're we're come. talking about Clark I, Gillies. Yeah, Clark yeah, Gillies, by the way, my Clark father-in-law. Is just, uh, <laughs> born's father-in-law. Um, crushing beer cans off his head at 67. I actually – so Ben and I had this game once where it was like, how old's – do you think X has to be for you to win in a fight, right? I so love this game. You, yeah, so it's like, how old does Mike Tyson have to be before right. you would take money to fight Mike Tyson? Because, like, clearly it's not now, right? Like, you'd yeah. fight Mike Tyson no. and his 50s. It's like, he's literally going to murder you. You're going to die in there. Um, but if Mike Tyson is, what, 85? Is that where you would start right. to say, you know, and you're you now, right? You're not aging at the same point. Because if you're, right. you know, if you're 50, he's going to kill you all the same. <laughs> but you get to be you in your athletic prime. When do you get to fight Mike Tyson? And I really think, like, yeah, 85 is, like, kind of the range that we would be talking where I'd feel like I'm not going to pee my pants facing Iron Mike. And you're kind of in – you're, like, not even in range yet. You just said no. he's 67 years old, no. and you're like, I don't see a foreseeable future in which I feel like my athletic prime could win this fight. So Clark Gillies, like, sneaky high up there in age in terms of guy you yeah. wouldn't mess with until he's, like, what? Like, on his deathbed. <laughs> you, you know, know what? Like, where you're, like, I, sucker I, I, punching I, him as he's laying back to getting his last right. You're yeah. like, yes! But he was probably playing, playing possum, though, and he has one yeah. last good punch yeah. in him. Yeah. Just Bob yeah. Barker's me from Happy yeah. Gilmore yeah. rises yeah. up. And, no, push uh, the priest aside and... Just sucker of all the, <laughs> you know what's funny is, 
is I've played this game with uh, with size before, but I hate it because when you talk to like fighters, they'll be like, so I've said, and maybe I've said this to you guys, what size can do you have to shrink down the best fighter in the world before he's just too small? Like, can I beat up uh, a 110-pound Conor McGregor? No. But at 100 pounds, like, how small does he have to be? An 80-pound yeah. Conor McGregor? No, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, what, no, what size I think, am I just too much person? No, no I, I, I think that <laughs> But he, he shrinks in height, pounds. too, by the way. No, yeah, no. A hundred, a hundred pounds is a, is very few pounds. <laughs> like it's very hard to imagine losing a fight to someone who's a hundred pounds. I gotta say, right. like yeah. if if I would take the fight at a hundred. If I get known, yes. hey, any professional fighter is a hundred pounds now. I, I'm taking the fight on matter of principle. Like, and, if and for you, the record, imagine they come to you now and they're like, "Are you accepting the fight? Will you sign here?" You're like, "No, he needs to lose ten more pounds." Like, no, you're a coward. A hundred pounds? Yeah. No. In fair no, no, no. but I, I don't even mean just like raw weight. I mean like you drag yeah, no, the top right, right cursor yeah. and shrink him down. Okay, yes. so he's still healthy. Yeah. He's not like a weight. <laughs> yeah, he's healthy. He's healthy, but it's just he's a okay. hundred pounds. Like I'm. If it's an MMA fight, like I'm ragged. I'm gonna look like GSP. Like, I'm taking him down. Like, I'm smashing him out. I'm 100 pounds heavier almost. Okay, so... God, let's get this back on track. Let's get this back on track. I, I, you know what? Let, let's start with the Islanders because I have, a, I have a Leafs thing. And normally, you know, we are going to podcast this as Leafs Hour. But I think that they're going to run into each other here. There's going to be an intersection. But let's start with this. What's going to happen if the Islanders win the Cup? Because we were talking about this with Merrick on Friday. And I do – I don't know if it's being overlooked or if I'm just distracted by Blue Jays and NBA and I, I don't have as much just reading NHL articles or watching the panel as I would normally do. But it's a copycat league, and three out of the four teams that were there last year are the same three out of the four teams. And the way we looked at Tampa Bay was – Yes, do they have the top-end skill? There's no doubt about it. But what put them over the top was getting grittier, was getting the guys who can do it all, getting the guys who go in the corners, getting the guys who are closers. And now it's also like, if Tampa wins, what can you learn? That you need to go $18 million of a salary cap? Like, salary cap manipulation is going to be one of the right. main things for you? Like, three of the same four teams are here. It's a copycat league. Do you think that there's actually going to be fallout from this is there something that we've learned? Because you can't replicate what Vegas did, and you can't really replicate what Tampa's doing, but you can replicate what the Islanders are. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, you know, I agree. It's a copycat Unless league. Unless you're Seattle, sorry. Seattle, Seattle can replicate the sure. Vegas Golden Knights. Sorry. But, like, it's... I guess the takeaway is everyone looks at the Islanders and they go structure and veterans and defense and yada yada and you pray to the almighty whatever you believe in that that doesn't happen for hockey's sake. Mm -hmm. I'll say my big takeaway from the two or the three teams that are there back to back years and ho playoff hockey watching the Leafs struggles the past oh five years now um, is that <sighs> You know, all those young guys that you get really excited about that are really great players, like, it really is important to have guys that stick to the system and are men and are older and have, you know, have a little bit of, like, I guess just age and experience to them. Not that you want to go search out those guys like, you know, the Leafs this year adding the all the age and experience they could possibly find, but just that... 
you know, you have to check your excitement over Rodion Amarov because how realistically, how soon is he going to be a difference maker um, for for a team? You look at these two clubs or these three clubs that we're talking about now, and they don't have a ton of guys who showed up this year and have moved the needle in a significant way. They have NHL hockey players who've been around. Yeah, I would say it's just lean hard into defense and limiting goal scoring, and that's the number one priority. And then add uh, some nice pieces of the deadline. I mean, it should be mentioned that the last two deadline acquisitions, Pajot and Palmieri, have paid off in spades. I mean, they signed Pajot to the extension, but he leads them in playoff points, and Palmieri in, in playoff goals this season. Can I but jump they were in this... there just for one quick yeah. second, Ben, on Palmieri? Is yeah. I've seen a lot of criticizing the Leafs because they didn't get Palmieri. Palmieri oh, he wasn't no coming here. He, he, was yeah. not, he had no trade. He wasn't coming here. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very obvious, but I've seen a yep. lot of people doling out L's to the Leafs for not being no. in on Palmieri when it's like they could not get him. No. Anyway, sorry. Sorry to derail. No, he's an American guy, and he didn't want to cross the border. He didn't want to do the no. quarantine thing. Like, that was a story at the time. But, yeah, would have liked him because you know what he does? He plays a physical, hard game, and he scores goals, and he's a performer at the correct time. God, he would have been perfect. He's, <laughs> he's absolutely used to be. Dude, he's absolutely perfect to add to any playoff team. But what I was saying was, yeah, this this is the team. They've actually scored a lot of goals in the postseason uh, yesterday notwithstanding. I think they were leading the NHL in goals per game in the postseason before they only scored two yesterday against Tampa. But the thing is, limiting opposition opportunities and we know this and that's why they've been labeled as this boring team but second fewest goals against during the regular season that's what you can like it's not the 90s anymore this isn't the the devils and marty brodeur and limiting teams to like 10 shots and the, the whole game but it's not diametrically opposed to that like there's still a, a, an avenue to win that way it seems yeah the big thing too is they don't prioritize possession in a way that you know we talk about it in the NHL today like you got to have the puck all the time like they don't care if you have the puck they just don't want you to have the puck in the dangerous areas so they're comfortable in their own zone like you know we talk uh, this is Leafs hour and we talk you know a ton about them and their defense got way better they defended well this year you know how much is that as a soft division I don't know but you know I don't know that you ever felt comfortable with them in their own zone. Like, the Islanders will play there in a way that some fighters, to go back to that, will be comfortable in the corner. They'll be comfortable against the ropes, and they'll just pick you apart when you come at them. You know, this is part of what they do, and it's they are an anomaly in the NHL in that, it, you know, you go back statistically, they're a weird team that they'll let the, the team, other team have the puck, they'll let them shoot it. They just really focus on not letting them shoot it from the dangerous areas, with, particularly with a sh- uh, pass before. Yeah, I'm not a. There's there's no apologies for this being you know Leafs connected because that's what this show is, because that's what we're doing here is watching these teams have success, evaluating them and wondering what it is that's different between them and the group that we get to watch in this city, and the thing I think I've learned is we already knew that when anybody would say there's one way to win that that was ridiculous, right? that it was, well, you need to have the defenseman who can play half the game. you got to have the Chris Pronger and, and Scott Niedemeyer guy, and then, you know, you got to get stops, and you got to do it this way. Oh, you got to have one of the best skills. you got that. Of course, there's always been different ways to win. But I, I kind of do believe that from the fan base's standpoint here, I'm not going to lump Dubas into this because I, I really don't think that front offices think this way. But from a fan base standpoint, I think that a lot of people really rushed to the idea that the formula Toronto had was 
more conclusive or was going to give them more definitive positive results than have happened. Like that mm-hmm. possession and stacking your top group, that that was going to be enough. That that formula was like overlooked and that the good hockey teams do this and the good hockey teams have this. And so if you can do it, you can win. And that when I'm watching these other teams, even the ones that do have a ton of puck possession, right, like Tampa, I look at them, as you were kind of saying, going, yeah, but there, there are a lot of differences. And the fact that we boiled it down to this was a unbelievable oversimplification for a sport that is very complicated. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, the and you know what st- uh, stands out for me too is uh, ice time. And you, you, know, you talk about overloading uh, the top guys the way the, the Maple Leafs did and Maple Leafs didn't play the, the hell out of those guys. You know, I remember <laughs> Babcock getting so heavily chastised for talking about the Bruins and being like, look at their top guys. You know, they don't play, you know, a million minutes a night or, you know, when everyone was talking about why his main guys didn't play more. The Islanders are making light. They're absolutely laughing at the concept of ice time for forwards. Yep. So last game, 10 of their 12 forwards played between 13 and 17 minutes. 10 of their 12 guys, which is absurd. One guy played less, Matt Martin. He played 11 and a half. One guy played more, Peugeot. He played 19 minutes and change. Like, you know, that is such a disparity from not just the Leafs, but the rest of the NHL in general. Just they're throwing four lines over the boards. Yeah, and they have 14 different goal scorers and nine players with at least three goals in the postseason mm-hmm. this year. Wow, nine players with three goals. That's wild. Yeah, that is. So, again, I think that you can really trend into hot take territory. And, and we're... We're getting close to it, and <laughs> we're definitely going to have a discussion that a lot of people think is going to be a hot take, or a lot of people are going to immediately basically walk away from because they are going to already have had their camps, and so they don't really need to hear about it because there's going to be already belief that they've made their decision up. But yes, um, the Islanders' formula is working, and in part, and this is what makes it start to get hot takey, is... I really do think that part of what has made the Islanders the success they are is that they are doing a lot of what the Leafs were supposed to be doing from the beginning of the Lou Lamorello era, which mm-hmm. is that there was a top-down organizational philosophy of you like everybody knows where they stand and everyone understands the new power structure and the power structure is not all the way with the players. Mm-hmm. And when I look at that Islanders team, I really do think there's a couple of things that you can't quantify. One is just like the area and the fan base and where they play and being able to buy into that, right? I've been kind of pushing this take a little bit privately and asking people what they think about it of, you know, is it just harder to win in Canada in general? Because not everyone always says, oh, it's the media attention. Oh, it's the the pressure cooker of being in Canada. I think it's like a lot of pressure on players to win no matter like where you are. The difference is that you know, I don't think that the Islanders players necessarily are massive celebrities in the way that any player who basically straps it on for a, a Canadian hockey team is, right? Mm-hmm. That there's just not that same level of your Canada TMZ versus in the States. You're like, oh, you're a pro hockey player? That That's cool. <laughs> you know? like, Oh, yeah. No, oh, these guys are getting a breakfast roll at a local deli, and it's not an that's, issue. <laughs> no, <laughs> that, that's what I mean. Like, they're walking around town. It's not – yeah, there's nobody stopping anybody in te- – like, maybe Victor Hedman gets stopped because he looks like a Viking Norse god kind of thing, six foot seven, walking around Tampa <laughs> yeah. Bay. I don't think Stamkos ever gets stopped in Tampa. I don't think uh, that he has a day where it's like, boy, honey, I'm home, and – 
God, I was just signing autographs down by the beach all day long. They were just, you know, I couldn't even take a breath. Everybody was staring at me and watching what I do and how that bleeds into this. But yes, that, that's the credit I got to give Lou Lamorello. And that's what I'm seeing here that is a part of it. It's not, just, it's not everything. A lot of it is the Islanders players and their goaltending and defensive structure, all of that. But that in part, getting these guys to play this way, getting the balance, not having anything be a hiccup when it comes to ice time or blah, blah, blah. None of these things being successory is, yes, part of it is success, but part of it is they have that culture top to bottom. And I, I do feel like it's very, very different in Canada. And I'm not just saying the Leafs. I feel like every Canadian organization this year was so different from that. Mm-hmm. This was a really weird year, wasn't it? Like just the the hyper focus well, yeah. on the Canadian teams and tough to separate how it normally is, you know, for for certain teams in Canada versus how this year was. But you know, I don't disagree that there's something to that. There's something to it's different. It, you know, it's obviously it's not prohibitive from winning like you could still win within that but I, I do think you know it's interesting I read some comments from Jonathan Marcheseau about playing in Vegas and how he's just like it's the greatest it's the greatest like you you know you go on a you have a slump or whatever and the fans are still like you know we love you you're the best whatever and they pick you up rather than tear you down and I don't think anyone here in Canada or the bulk of people tear people down there's just more people paying attention so you're going to get more jerks and you're going to get more pile on when things are uh, um, you know, not going well just by the perception of it and the, the volume. So I understand why some players say, yeah, look, I'd rather not deal with what goes on in, in a Canadian well, market. But yeah, there's there seems to be more of an us versus you mentality with Canadian fans and their fan bases and, you know, Canadian players and Canadian media than what I see with the teams south of the border. I just do. Like, there are times, right, you've seen it in Philadelphia where guys are very... Um, at odds, let's say, with the with the press there and with people who are fans of that team, where there can be like, a, you know, we play for the guys in this room mentality. But I, I feel like there's a lot of that in Canada. And, and watching these other teams, it doesn't quite feel that way. And I will say that the one group where, I don't know, that hasn't felt that way so far because of the success has been like Montreal, but uh, it wasn't always that way, so I'm not going to lump them in because I know that they had a season where it was like a lot of people calling for heads. Either way, I, I do think that culture... Um, it extends from the top down in this sport. And that, the, again, there's a reason why they brought in Lou Lamorello. And it was in Dude. part because they went out to go get a guy who had won. And it was a guy who was going to do things his way. And it was going to be that everybody else fall, fell in line. And that brings us to the question, which is that we wanted to pose to you today. Ben and I have been talking about it a lot. And I, I think I'm kind of coming in pretty hard to my stance. I think Ben is coming in pretty hard to his stance. And it revolves around whether or not the Leafs just pulled the trigger on Lou Lamorello too soon. Because that conversation is going to grow and grow. And that's what I mean. It sounds hot takey. But you see a lot of Leafs Twitter trying to do this thing where they go like, oh, wow, um, Lou gave Patrick Marlowe that contract. And Lou Lamorello gave Nikita Zaitsev that contract. And not a lot of like, actually look at all the RFAs he signed to absolute sweetheart deals and look at the momentum that was being built here and now look at what he's done on the island despite again like all general managers giving away like usually what are pretty bad free agent contracts and forgetting the amount of cap space that Toronto did have for those first few years of the stars do you think that the Leafs pulled the plug too soon on Lou Lamorello and going to Kyle Dubas that they got a little too antsy and they they didn't go with necessarily the wrong guy because that's the way I've put it is two things can be true. You've got the right GM now, but you didn't have the right GM at the time. How do you how do you reconcile with that question? 
Uh, oops, sorry, I was on mute. Um, yeah, tough to know. Tough to know. The you know the Leafs since Lou Lamorello has left um, have had success uh, in the regular season, and this team has not. You know there was a lot of big decisions and huge moves that were made that fundamentally changed the way this team looked from when Lou was here to when Lou wasn't here. Uh, and they, again, the team has been good save for winning a playoff round at this point. So it's impossible to say that those things were foregone conclusions with what decisions Lou would have made, you know, with uh, with those big contracts. If Zaitsev is still here or Marlowe was there for another year, it's impossible to know how this team would have looked had he stayed. But it's also impossible to miss that what seems to have been missing from this team that Dubas went out to pursue in guys like Nick Felino and Riley Nash are the type of things that Lou, Lou Lamarillo has valued in the past. So, yeah, you know, it's it would have been interesting to, to know how it could have worked with the two of them striking some sort of balance the way they worked together for years, but I don't know. You know, I'm honestly, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I don't think it's easy as saying that we're Lou still here, the, the Leafs would be a better team. Uh, I have no doubt, though, that he's made the Islanders a better team. And, you yeah. know, he walked into a team that was perfectly built for his, his taste already, and then he's tweaked it in a way that's really worked out. No, here's, here's what I know is that Lou Lamorello has been a successful executive before he arrived in Toronto. He arrived in Toronto and he changed the culture <laughs> almost immediately. And a lot of it we sniggered at and, and laughed at, at the haircuts and the no facial hair and the not letting the rookie speak to the media. And then he goes away and some of that stuff starts to loosen up. And then it's questions about, whether these guys are hard-nosed enough, whether they have that correct mentality to win a postseason series. I, I'm i one of those that does believe that this team is in a better spot right now with Lou Lamorello than, than Kyle Dubas and that I don't think that they could have survived together. Like, Kyle Dubas was ready for the next challenge. And, uh, I mean, he, what, had the either the interview lined up or the job lined up in Colorado. Like, he's not in this organization, and that's just one of the lumps that you have to take in that scenario. What I also believe is if you're someone that can't even explore that possibility that this team's in a better spot mm. with Lou Lamorello than Kyle Dubas, that you're so locked into to your one track mind of like you're you you don't listen to the evidence you're you're never going to change your opinion because I, I believe it's true I, I believe that there's a possibility it's not true but if you're someone who says that it's unequivocally not true and you're you're talking about things that can't be quantified because they don't exist then then you're nuts yeah no i i totally agree with you there and, and it is you know it's interesting looking at the things that the Leafs have tried to find in in Lamorello's absence, and you know, versus what the Islanders are. The value of culture is an in- interesting one. You talk about top down and all the things that Lou implemented, and a lot of people, you know, sort of getting their backs up over it initially, but then it sort of becomes a part of what your team is, and it's it's admirable how strictly he held to that and what an effect it did have on the organization. You know, I'm I'm probably in the other camp where, you know, we talked about early that there are other ways to win and I still feel that, you know, Dubas will find a way through here if given the time. The regular um, seasons, the records between the two since the Lou's gone to the island are like identical. Leafs and, and Islanders have basically identical regular season records. Yeah, yeah, and the, and the yeah. Islanders obviously have had more postseason success, and you can't say that they haven't had to play tough teams. You know, they got through Boston, Pittsburgh this year. I don't think you like the Leafs' odds of doing that. They're just fundamentally very different teams. 
I just don't know how you can make the case the Leafs wouldn't be in a better position based on the contract stuff. Like, this is the big one for me is everyone points to Lou Lamorello's unrestricted deals and says, hey, um, this guy misevaluated Zaitsev. This guy gave Matt Martin a contract. And Matt Martin's deal, again, I, I really don't think it was that bad. <laughs> he got like $10 million bucks over, I believe, four seasons. It, re- it really wasn't prohibitive of anything. They went out and got somebody who they liked and who's actually having a lot of success and maybe was a little miscast and um, there was a little bit too much pressure on, but it worked out. And if we're doing the whole like role model thing, uh, Mitch Marner seemed to really like him. And... Uh, that was important to them at the time. They went out and got Matt Martin for a reason. He was $4 million, 10 bucks. But really, it always comes down to the two unrestricted free agents that Lou gave money to. And it was, hey, he gave $31 million to Zaitsev, and uh, he gave three years to Patrick Marlowe. And those were huge mistakes. I just look at all the RFAs he signed, all the guys that he signed to their first big contracts, and every single one of them is a steal. Every single one of them. And it's hard for me to look at those and say, oh, well, it still would have changed drastically had he been there for Matthews and for Marner and Nylander. I just don't. I I feel like he would have gotten all those guys on better deals. And if he wouldn't have, then something would have changed. Yeah, I I think what's most likely in those scenarios is you probably have a you know, you're probably sitting right now in a position where you feel better about things because Nylander doesn't come back and play at the 11th hour the one year where he couldn't get it done. You know, maybe the Marner thing plays out differently and he's not a Maple Leaf at all. You know, it's, you know, I think there are potential for huge differences in how those, those situations went down. If I were to say that one thing that I think would be different and better, it is the, the contracts of, of the big guys. Um, you know, as I said, what? Well, like... He never gave anyone more than $30 million. Morgan Riley didn't get more than 30. He got 30 on the nose. Nazem Kadri, these are six year contracts. Kadri got Well, six that's years, not relevant, though, because we're not talking about the same type of players. It's uh, not like you Matthews would think... not got $30 million. No, no, I mean, no, no. no. I'm not talking about Matthews not getting $30 million, but you don't think that there's a parallel between a guys who are, you know, front end, first round picks who, like Morgan Riley, was viewed at the time, I believe, anyways, as this team's like future captain. Who's their most valuable asset in the organization? He took a six-year deal at $30 million. I'm just saying that the pattern here was nobody really got drastically outpaid and everybody was pretty close. It was $25 million for Freddie over five. It was $30 million for Morgan Riley over six, which, again, is insane. And it was $27 million over six for Nazem Kadri. And the rest of those guys, like, they fell in line with really, really cheap deals, which is, like, the one yeah. that I think Connor Brown is just finishing and Zach Hyman is just finishing right now. Like, those deals were ridiculously good for the Leafs. And that's what I'm saying is like that pattern. No, do I think Austin Matthews is going to sign six years, $30 million? Of course not. He was definitely going to sign probably very close to what he got right now. I think it's the other two guys that would have gone first or the order of the contracts in which he would have done it. I I very much do believe that if he is here, we're not doing the whole thing about the can you win with the four contracts. We're doing the can you believe that they have these four contracts. Mm, yeah, I think uh, they're going, can you win with these two or three contracts? Because the yeah, other maybe one that. or two don't play here. Maybe um, that. Yeah. yeah it's, it, I think things would look drastically differently, and it's tough to guess. All you can say is that Lou, Limer- Lou Lamorello has uh, been vindicated in a lot of ways, both his yep. time here and the success he's had uh, in Long Island with that group. You know, a credit to like, stuff like – 
you know, Barzal played a poor defensive game in his early going, and they could have been frustrated with him. And, you know, Bavillier, like some of the skill guys that he's let exist within that lineup have, have really been successful for them too. So, you know, trading for Komarov and, and Martin, you know, was kind of made fun of, but it's now part of, like, the identity of what that team has. I don't know if you'd want those guys on your team here in Toronto. Well, <laughs> they didn't. That's the thing. Because but... I look at the granular, and I'm like, well, the and I expected to see, you know, you look at the Islanders' cap sheet, and they don't have those top four eating up uh, $40 million. But you look at the, the middle part of the rosters and the cap-friendly situation, both have seven skaters, the Leafs and the Islanders, seven skaters making at least $4 million. And there's only a slight discrepancy if you take it down to $3 million. I think the Islanders have 10 players making at least $3 million, and the Leafs have uh, eight players making at least $3 million. Like, who's the, what's the difference in roster between these two when it comes to cap flexibility like is it a guy like Leo Komarov who's making three million bucks and would you rather have a Leo Komarov on your team like that's why I think it goes back more to even the culture stuff than than just hey they overpaid these guys Mm-hmm. Yeah, the culture stuff is, is, you know, interesting just because it's not like Kyle Dubas came in and said, you know, all right, you're all free, go nuts, do whatever, you know, like they still don't talk to the media much. There's still a lot of the same restrictions in place um, for young players. There's, yeah. you know, the, you know, I'm not sure how much of that is entirely different, but it doesn't feel. I feel the same. like it's wildly different. I, I honestly feel like this is more protectionism than it is. Um, like, with Lou, it was... And maybe, again, this is unfair because those guys were younger then, right? Like, the core guys were younger, and they wanted to limit exposure and not have it. It felt like, okay, well, you guys aren't doing these things because you're not going to believe your own hype. You're not going to do these things because, you know, they're, we're going to give uh, more attention to veterans and blah, blah, blah. Like, I do remember how doing these shows, or I think I was booking them, it was, okay, you could get JVR on the show. You know, right. you could get... You could get yep. Tyler Bozak on a show. Actually, Bozak hated speaking, but <laughs> some guys you could get, and then there were others where it was like a non-starter with the young guys. To me, at this point, frankly, it feels more like added layers of protection than it does like a culture of not buying your own hype. Like mm-hmm. I, That's just the way I feel. And again, maybe that's unfair, but... It goes back to the entitlement of the group. It goes back to the blue and white disease that I see that's rampant through this group right now. And again, to me, it's a top-to-bottom problem, and it's one that they don't have on the Long Island, but it's one that you know, like maybe they don't have to face on Long Island. So again, there's some tough things to compare and contrast, but I, I just I feel like a lot of the lessons that were learned or the things that were taken over from Lou and his regime and how it was like Dubas being the protege – I don't really see a lot of those things in application maybe the way that you do. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, uh, it's totally uh, a, a bet on what's going to win a Stanley Cup in the end. And I think that both both parties, both Dubas and Lou, um, have set a goal of nothing less than the Stanley Cup is going to be an answer. You know, mm-hmm. this, this New York Islanders team is going to run into and, and has – in the past, run into issues where they just aren't talent heavy enough. This Leafs team has bet heavy, heavy, heavy on talent and that the rest of the stuff doesn't matter as much. You know, I'm not sure that, you know, a, a, this 
the shortcomings right now for the Toronto Maple Leafs when we look back at this in a few years aren't something that you can say, yeah, you know, those young guys figured it up and they went farther than any of those Islanders teams did. You know, they're not there yet, but right now, where we sit, it's impossible to note that, boy, uh, it sure looks like, you know, things are going better in Long Island for Lou than, than Kyle Dubas. Yeah, I'll say, especially considering they went six against the Lightning last year, despite having to go across the the continent and losing game one, giving up eight goals, and yeah, maybe. In I just want to say, I hope that, that Leaf fans that like my ultimate dream here is that I get this audio thrown in my face viciously next year. I was like, the Islanders get bounced here; they don't win. They're a team that can go deep, but that they hit a ceiling, and that next year the Leafs are one of those teams that because they have the talent can overcome the ceiling that the Islanders have hit. But it's just yeah. Uh, it's hard to hit Evidence. the ceiling when you can't get out of the first round. <laughs> it's like, yeah. okay. You know, yeah. hard to be like, yeah. well, they could, but it's like, well, they haven't even won one playoff series as Lou is just racking them up with the same regular season record. Yep, no big deal. And, yeah, he's hit on his uh, trade deadline acquisitions as well. All right. We have the uh, lone Canadian team starting their playoff series tonight, Montreal Canadiens, uh, who I guess are going to try and play that Islanders style of defensive game uh, against the Vegas Golden Knights in a game with a ton of fans. What does that mean? Is that going to impact the Canadians? We'll talk about that and more with Justin Bourne next. It's Good Show, Ben Ennis, J.D. Bunkus, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Good Show, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. And this is also being podcasted as the Leafs Hour. Um, J.D. Bunkus, Ben Ennis, Justin Bourne. You can follow us all on Twitter and on Instagram, at J.T. Bourne, at J.D. Bunkus, at Sportsnet Ben. I want to just say one last thing on the Dubas versus... Lou thing, which is again, I hate these kind of sports debates now because they become like identity politics which is what you always hope to avoid as a sports fan. I I just ask that anybody who's having it tries to just put some bias aside and look at both sides of hey, well, what is and what isn't. And I really do believe that the Leafs have the general manager the right general manager right now. Like I, I know that that's not the the populist opinion when a guy gets bounced yet again, but I, I really do believe the Leafs built a very, very good team this year, and it was the perfect storm that broke against them to lose in that series. And I, yet I also believe that there is kind of like this entitlement throughout the building and that there is this like je ne sais quoi about this group that I can't quite identify, and I think that people are having trouble identifying that goes beyond, for me anyways, luck, bad puck luck, which is the way that some people kind of want to sell it to you. And that's fine. I don't think that's an unreasonable opinion. I just, I don't think that's it. I think it extends beyond that. But yeah, it's just, it's getting really, really tough to watch the Islanders have this success in the way that they want it to be. And knowing that it is all top down and not wonder, you know, if things would have been different. So you're doing the thing. So I I talked about, the people who cannot change their minds on this thing, that they're so dead set in their ways that they cannot be convinced. You're one of the... Listen, I'll give you some credit. You have changed your opinion slightly, right? Because this is... I think I was more on Lou remaining here at the time than moving directly to I'm Kyle cheating. Dubas. And I'm you're cheating. a cheater. My, because, no, I'm no, a but cheater you're not. because... Yes, I am. You're not, I, you're I think that the best scenario... 
I think the big mistake was letting Dubas negotiate the deals of all the young guys and that we should all be able to recognize that Kyle Dubas might be a good GM, he might be a smart GM, but I think that there was a little bit of an overplay of this guy's connected to this group, he's part of the identity moving forward, we'll let him negotiate these contracts. Hell, they're RFAs. Like, how hard could this be? It's not unrestricted negotiations. They turned out to be way harder, and I don't want to say he was in over his head because that's... That's a little bit too hyperbolic for me. But I do think that learning on the fly how to negotiate contracts at a time where the league was changing, um, when the most important core in the franchise's history, arguably, was not a great decision. That probably it's reasonable to think that had you let the guy who continues to get good contracts out of restricted free agents do that exact thing, you might be in a better spot from a cap standpoint. And whether the team and the culture and all the things that we've discussed, like I think that is way more like opinion and uh, BSing a bit. But the thing, the biggest problem with the Leafs right now is that they've got some guys that make a little bit too much money. And yes, did they get hit with a flat cap? And is it unfortunate? And all these different things? Of course it is. But I watched Lou have a contract negotiation with Matt Barzell that was, oh, Barzell's going to get traded and, you know, he's just not going to accept this and everybody's so upset and what's going to happen? And he wants $11 million or $10 million just like all these other guys. And guess what? He took seven and he's still a restricted free agent the next time his deal comes up. So you can stuff that in your pipe and smoke it kind of thing. Like, it's just very clear that one guy is much better at negotiating contracts. Anyways, back to Bourne, who's just been sitting there silently. He has been <laughs> no, he's been, he's been making noises. He's been going... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. we're doing... <laughs> and puffs and... Do you have any, yeah. anything to add to that, Bourne? Anything to add? No, no, not at all. Oh, well, <laughs> that's really, the thing. I really don't. I mean, I think you're right. I, those yeah. those deals are... They were... The errors that, that Dubas made were those deals, and they were supposed to look better as time went on, but mm-hmm. bad luck has forced a spotlight on those errors, which now they may have been smallish at the time, but now they look large because you made their errors nonetheless. Doesn't excuse them. Here's here's what's unequivocally true as well, is that Dubas had created good and championship-level hockey teams in a couple of different Mm -hmm. levels, in the OHL uh, and in the AHL, and actually won a title with the Marlies, but he had never negotiated contracts like that to that degree because, Mm -hmm. frankly, like nobody for this franchise had ever done it. yeah. Yeah, but he hadn't done it. And mm-hmm. it's fair enough to look back and say that they were not incorrectly well. negotiated. That's all. Now I want to do more hot takes. Oh, boy. Or more things we can't quantify. So I was sitting there last night thinking about this Habs-Vegas series and how, you know, Bourne and I are going to do picks in deep later today, and I was kind of looking at the gambling stuff and, you know, trying to decide what picks I was going to make. And part of the way I make my picks is narratives. Okay. I just do. I am a dummy who does game scripts. And I was thinking to myself about the ways the Habs win versus the ways the Golden Knights win. And there are these two things, these two theories that I think are competing with one another. And maybe they're both true, but I want to ask you guys, which one of these theories you believe in more? Because I said this a long time ago, so I got to stick with it which is that the Canadian teams are going to be at a disadvantage because they're going to go from empty rinks. There were more fans than I thought there would be, but I think it's, what, 2,500 people? What did the Habs get up to? 2,500. And great barn, loud, and they did a great job and all those different things. But going from 2,500 in a barn after nobody in a barn to a packed house in Vegas, I think is going to be a bit of an interesting 
dynamic, especially for younger players who have not been there before. Like Nick Suzuki played in the bubble last year, and now he's doing this. Same with Cole Caulfield. Like, I wonder if it's overwhelming for that Habs team if there is, like, an acclimation theory here as to whether they're going to be able to get their emotions in check in time, especially as underdogs in a series where you can't just give up a game. You can't give up two games. Conversely, I wonder if Vegas, after having the chip on their shoulder of being the underdogs against a loaded-up team in the Colorado Avalanche, who everyone expected to win the Stanley Cup this season, and who have been battle-hardened in this tough division, now have to go into a series where they're the overwhelming favorites, and they don't get to be the chip-on-their-shoulder team, whether they can kind of find the same energy that they've had as an entire franchise ever since they started, which is, we're the overlooked guys, we're the castaways, we're the guys who couldn't get a deal in Mark Stone, and so we get to be the underdogs. You don't get to play that card here. Which acclimation theory are you buying? <laughs> One, both, either, which is better? Uh, thank you. Can I have my Scantron so I can fill this out? This is very complicated. Yeah. Um, you know, I, so I think that Vegas is used to the fans and excited and been through this playoff, uh, you know, the, the crowds there and all that. I think Montreal's going to get a little juice from it. You know, I think they, they're okay. going to be the group that's been playing in front of nobody who's suddenly like, ah, oh, this matters and we're excited and we're playing a fun team, not the Winnipeg Jets. But anyway, I think they're going to get a little juice from it. That said, I think they're going to get killed. Um, I think... <laughs> Yes. I, I think I yes. think Montreal in general they they want to be this uh, Islanders defensively stout playoff team that's going to protect the house. If they are a little fired up and running around a little bit more and a little bit less composed, I think there's going to be a few more holes. And frankly, they weren't the Islanders already. So if they're if they're a little bit too excited and they're trying to play that way, I think they're going to get uh, eaten alive. They're not as good. Imagine, by the way. Being the Vegas Golden Knights and the team is presenting to you uh, the opposing team's lines, and so I, you know, when I was with the Marlies, I would take the three line, the sorry, the three players on a line before a playoff series. We would look at them. I had things written on every player, and it's like McKinnon, Rantanen, Landeskog. These guys do this. Here's how we're going to shut them down. Like, imagine putting up the Canadians and trying to sell them as a tough opponent, and being like, all right, so it's Perry, Eric Stahl's on their team now. I don't know if you guys remember him. Like, I, I, I think, I think it's going to be tough for Vegas to get up, but that doesn't take away from the fact that I still think they're going to roll them. I just, it's, what a weird series for Vegas. But still, it seems like you're buying my Vegas theory yeah. more than you are buying the Habs theory because you're going in direct opposition Every, of the Habs. I know. Everything overrides. The, the Vegas is going to kill Montreal thing should override everything else I said. Uh, so, yes. Are the Montreal Canadiens going to try and play this Islander style of, hey, shut down no event hockey against mm. the Vegas Golden Knights? Yeah. Are they as good as the Islanders at doing that? Like, uh, pretty unequivocally, no. Well, they're like uh, middle of the pack the defensively. Dude, they gave up almost a goal more per game than the Islanders did during the regular season. And you know how I mentioned how the Islanders gave up the second fewest goals in the National Hockey League during the regular season? You know the team that gave up the fewest? It's the Vegas Golden Knights, who uh -oh. are uh, an absolute stout defensive team playing in the same division as one of the highest-flying offensive teams in the Colorado Avalanche that just beat them. And also, look at the Avalanche in that series, how they just cracked defensively by the end of it, and they were giving up um, turnovers left and right. But beyond that, the whole defensive thing, like the Montreal Canadiens have a difficult time scoring at the best of times. They're facing the best defensive team in all of hockey. Like, I just, I have no idea how they're going to score. I don't like that you guys turn my fun segment into serious <laughs> hockey talk. I got to say, like, I'm offended.
<laughs> we we didn't I spent a lot of time thinking pitch. about these conspiracy theories last night, and here's Ben with his stats and born with his actual experience running a hockey team. I, yeah. I, that was upsetting. Uh, I, I wanted them bad, I wanted I wanted you to know that when we filmed this betting segment, when we you know yeah. in a couple hours here, I'm coming in with like Vegas minus two and a half games, Vegas minus yeah. a goal and a half. I'm, okay. I'm betting it. Yeah. I'm going the other way. All right, I'm going halves. I'm going wow. to the Town. I think they're going to get. I, You're going to get paid. Here's, you here's get what that I one, believe. Right? Here's the here's the the twist ending to my question. I believe in both theories. Okay. Whoa. I in both theories. Yeah, that's right. Oh, how <laughs> you about never that? Be wrong. How about <laughs> that? Defend your brain. Hold on. I believe in both theories in this regard. I think that Montreal is going to come out and look kind of shaky, or that there is like when Bourne says that they're going to get some juice. I. I don't know. I, I just think that guys like Shea Weber, it's not going to matter. Guys like Carey Price, it's not going to matter. But the rest of the roster, the younger guys, for Suzuki and Kotkaniemi to have been playoff performers in empty arenas or 2,500 fans, especially on the road where, like, you were in front of the nurses and now you're in front of, like, a rowdy entertainment center where it's, you know, uh, there's going to be plays basically happening on the ice in a loud, loud arena that, yeah, you know what, it's going to feel a little different, and you've never done that before. And so I'll always say that the first time you do things, it's usually pretty hard. Just look at everything through life. Uh, first time, new experience, there's usually a bit of jitters. There's uh, some self-doubt that goes into that that is a little different. So I believe that is going to happen to those guys. If I'm wrong, great. But I also think that Vegas, it's going to be a hard time not for them to take Montreal a little lightly and for them not to feel like they look at Justin Bourne's props of minus two and a half and blowing out these games and we're so wildly talented and we shut down McKinnon. Now we got to shut down Cole Caulfield. And I just wonder if... They let that get in their heads a little bit. And if they have that chip this whole time as an organization of we're the underdogs, nobody believes in us, we're the angry team, how that's going to impact their play in the series and whether or not they kind of let Montreal up from the mat and all of a sudden you let a team up from the mat that has Carey Price. So I'm rolling with the Habs. Am I doing it in part potentially because I've picked against the Habs and they keep winning and I can't stand yeah, them and I want them to edge. lose? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe Honestly, I've considered a it. little. A Last little? year, I bet, I bet against Dallas all the way to the cup mm -hmm. final. And so by the time Tampa was playing Dallas in like game yeah. five and six of that yeah. those final games, I was throwing the house on Tampa. I was like, I have lost so much money on Dallas and I'm going down swinging mm -hmm. on that with Montreal right now. They're killing me. They're killing me, but I, I'm yeah. just going to bet more and more until I'm right because they're not winning the Stanley oh. Cup. We're not sitting yes, here in man. a month with Montreal as cup champions. And if they are, I deserve every... <laughs> bit of financial punishment that I'm uh, yeah. risking. All hey, Montreal fans, uh, I haven't seen my team win a playoff series since there was a salary cap, and since I was a high schooler, um, I'm on your bandwagon, all right? Make you room. You don't mean that. You don't <laughs> Make mean room that. How, on Leafs Hour, you're going to say that? Everybody move over. Hey, CN Tower and Niagara Falls and every that's the theme. Everybody in Ontario is just, hey, shining praise for the Canadians. I'm just doing what my province has indicated that we should be doing, which is respecting them and oh, gaslighting wow. them into thinking they're the best. And then, you know, that they, I, stay, wow. Montreal needs this people the plan? believing in them. Me, is this the plan? Maybe, maybe the whole province has been doing a reverse jinx with the CN Tower. You can't with, say it. With, you can't oh, right. say Sorry. it out loud.
Okay. And, like, <laughs> that's why I always start my text that are reverse jinxes with, I swear this isn't a reverse jinx. You know, right, to counter such a reverse jinx. Yeah, exactly. But here's yeah. my reverse jinx. Here's yeah. Your team is safe. Okay? That's how I feel about it. All right. So uh, go Habs, go. Ole, ole, ole. Let's go. Yeah. I'm earnest, and I think they're going to yeah. get pasted. All right, boy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, See guys, you, buddy. Thanks. Yeah, bye. See you, bud.